Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, Graduate of The Ohio State University, uh, former ATP pro, uh, a coach to many, a mentor to many, father of great tennis player, uh, former USTA coach, worked for Federation, from the Bahamas, uh, former Davis Cup player. If you name it in tennis, he's done it all, knows everyone. Everyone has great stories about him, and we're going to hear some of his great stories today. We are here with Mr. Roger Smith. Roger, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kamal. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak here, man. So I'm, I'm glad I got you on the show because, you know, when we think about Bahamian tennis, the first person out of everybody's mouth is Mark Knowles. <laughs> and then I got to correct him and be like, hey, what about Roger? What about the brother Roger? <laughs> so, you know, you, you grew up playing tennis from in a small island. Um, but, I mean, that island's had a lot of success, reaching the same world group as the U.S. back in the day. Tell me about how you got into tennis from that small island and how you were able to sort of progress to come into play at the top level NCAA, at, you know, top college in the States uh, from the Bahamas. Well, if you have all day, I can tell you that story, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do bits and pieces as we go. Yeah, I'm from a small island, obviously Grand Bahama in the Bahamas, but I'm actually from a very small settlement called West End. The population was probably 3,000. And uh, in that settlement, you, you know, obviously tourism is the main industry, and we had one resort down there called the Jack Tower Hotel. And remember, I'm old now. You know, I came from the days where, you know, uh, the bosses and the powers to be were obviously, you know, we were a British colony. So obviously the white British guys were in charge and coming from a, a, an island where there was mostly, you know, black people, we could only go so far, mm-hmm. you know, working at that resort. You know, we could be mater d's, you could be pool attendants. Most of us couldn't even show our face at, at, at the front desk per mm-hmm. se, you know? Mm-hmm. So growing up in that environment, I kind of knew from a young age, I'm saying six years old, that, hey, there's something bigger and better for me out there. You know, because all my friends growing up, all they wanted to do was be bus boys and mater d's where they can get $40 tips and so forth. And I was like, nah, man, there's got to be something bigger than that. And and so I despised of that. Uh, I remember back in the day uh, where the bosses, white guys, would, would, uh, you know, word would go around that they were coming into the village per se, uh, to eat and dine and drink a few. And everybody in the village would pretty much cook their best food. You had to dress up in, in, in Sunday, your Sunday best. And if there were like three, 30 restaurants, per se, maybe they would go to visit two or three, right, during the uh-huh. course of the evening. And everyone would be so disappointed. All, all the restaurant owners or the bars would be so disappointed. And you should, I mean... The look on their face, man, was just terrible. 
you know, in disappointment. And I just despise that, man. And, and that motivated me. I found my purpose at a young age. I was not going to get caught up in that stuff. I knew there was something bigger and better out there for me. I didn't know what it was at the time. I was six years old. But, you know, I, I took a bold step to just strive for something better. And even if I so-called failed to in people's eyes, it didn't matter. My mm -hmm. purpose was so deep that it just didn't matter, man. I was going for it. I didn't know it was tennis, but eventually we moved to Freeport where my, my mother, we moved to this condominium and they had a tennis courts and they had a tennis wall. I was so bad, Kamal, man. <laughs> None of the kids would play with me, man. And mostly white kids, you know, expats. Yeah. None of them would play with me. And there happened to be one kid I went to school with that taught me how to score, taught me the rules of the game. And man, I just became a fanatic. I fell in love with the sport. Now I played a lot of other sports, you know, basketball, baseball, you name it, um, track and field. But I just fell in love with tennis, man. And I, I just played on this wall all day, all night. I would even get in trouble with my mom, man. I'd come in after dark and I'd lose a million balls. I'd be climbing fence to find balls, man. And, uh, but I got good. And three months later, I played my first tournament. Mm -hmm. And back in the day, a junior tournament was just 18 and under. No right. age group, pretty no much. No age group, right, yeah. And I got to the quarterfinals, you know, just on fight. My strokes were terrible. Right. I could run. I hate to lose. And I, like I said, I, I had a purpose, man. Now, were you self-taught at that point? Did you receive any formal training? Oh, or was it just you and the wall? Just the me ball and on the, the wall, street? man. Just me and the wall, self-taught. And everybody that would hit with me, man, I wanted to go all day. They would hit for 10 minutes and quit. I used to get so pissed, man. I wanted to just hit all day. I'd line them up, man, hit with three people all. And after like an hour, they quit. I had no one else to hit with, man. So I would just go on the wall, right? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I just learned. I just didn't want to miss. I just got consistent. And I got to the quarterfinals, like I said, beat a couple of good guys. And then I lost in the quarters to this kid who was 18. And he had a beard, man, big and strong, <laughs> good strokes. Lost six four in the third in a three and a half hour match. And uh, then all the kids wanted to play with me. And then some men saw me play and they invited me to their, their club. And they were like, look, it was hotel, really, not the club. Mm -hmm. And come play with the men. So I started to play with the men, and they would beat my butt, man. I'd be crying because I want to win so bad. They would tease me, but I forgot the kids, man. You know, I, I didn't play with them. I just, uh, I just learned how to compete, you know, just learned how to compete through everything. Mm -hmm. And a year later, man, I played my first 12 and the national tournament, which was in Nassau now, where Mark Knowles is from, mm -hmm. and I won the 12 and unders. Mm -hmm. And that was like within six to eight months after I first started playing tennis. So that's how I got started, man. That's how I got started. But I was like a court rat, man. I would, anyone would tell you, man, you, well, you, if you wanted to find Roger Smith, he was at the court at this one hotel called the Princess Tower. Mm. And going further, you know, the Princess Tower was where they had the superstars. I don't know if you remember the superstars back. That might be before your time. That's man. before my time. Yeah, but you heard of it, right? That's yeah. when they had all the, all the superstars of every sport come in and compete against each other in different sports to see who was the best. And this big, and this guy saw me play, and he loved the way I played, man. He saw me hitting at the courts, and he said, hey, who's your coach? And I said, man, I don't really have a coach. And he said, I'm going to come back in two weeks, man. I'm going to get you some coaching. And I go, okay, man, you're going to come back in two weeks. I'll be ready. Right. So an hour later, he came back, and he shook my hand. And he says, look, man, 
you ready to go? I mean, I mean, this is how serious I am. And he gave me a hundred dollar bill. And a hundred dollar back then is a lot of money. And there was a big guy, man, you know, and, and and he just had this certain look about him, man, and 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 a strong male figure, you know. But I didn't know who he was. Gave me the hundred dollars. Sure enough, Kamal, two weeks later he came back. Mm. And he said, You're gonna be ready to go on Sunday. This is like Thursday. And I'm like, damn, he's serious. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna be ready to go. Mm-hmm. And he says, but I gotta meet your parents. So I go, I get you. You're not gonna meet my dad, because remember, my dad passed away when I was 11 months old. So mm-hmm. I never really knew my dad. So it was all mm-hmm. my mom, you know. And so I told her, look, we gotta go to dinner to meet this guy. He's gonna take me to Florida to get this coaching. She's like, man, get the hell out of here, man. You, you crazy. I was like, no, man, no. And she's like, I ain't going. I was like, no, you're not going to kill my dream. You got to go. Mm. So she came. We went. We met him at the hotel. She saw him. I said, there's the guy right there. She says, do you know who that is? And I go, no, I don't know who that is. She said, that's Jimmy the Greek. And I'm like, Jimmy the Greek? I don't know who that is. And she says, man, that's Jimmy the Greek. So anyway, we went. If you know Jimmy the Greek, man, you know, he was the big. Vegas oddsman there with sports and stuff. You know, he did Monday night football. He was huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, long story short, she gave me $200 to go with him on Sunday. We get to the ticket counter and I said, Hey, uh, Mr. Snyder, cause his name is Jimmy the Greek Snyder. Here's my 200 bucks for the ticket. He said, man, keep that money in your pocket, pocket, man. So we get on the flight, man. We go to Miami and uh, we get there and we're met by like uh, a group of like, of, of like seven, eight people. And you could tell they were someone, you know, and, and mm-hmm. a limousine. And we go to the limousine and I'm and now I'm really nervous because I'm like, our bags, man, my I need our bags. And he's like, oh, don't worry about the bags. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's all the clothes I got. My bags are my <laughs> clothes in there, man. We gotta, I need my bags. So we get to this condominium and we went to this place called the California Country Club, and, which is where I was going to train with Gardner Malloy, but he had a condo there. And it was owned by Caesar's Palace. And uh, so we go up to this condo. We get in there, and our bags are there. I'm like, damn, is this magic? What the mm. hell is How did we get our bags? I, right. I was blown away. But it was my first formal, like, uh, experience of life of the rich and famous. You know what I'm mm. saying? Mm-hmm. And it was like, damn, they, these guys got magic, man. I mean, mm. I, I, we ain't got it like that. I don't have it like that in the Bahamas. You know what I mean? Right, right. So got my first coach coaching experience from Gardner Malloy, the great Gardner Malloy mm. in Miami, and you know obviously, and he was great. He was he mm. was stubborn. He was mean, but he meant well. And, mm-hmm. and hey, I was not gonna blow my chances mm-hmm. at this chance to play tennis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I, I was gonna ask you that because you know a lot of like we always talk about people from Barbados, from the U.S.V. Virgin Islands, from the Bahamas, finding their way to Florida at some point, right? They yeah. show promise on the island, and at some point, somebody makes a phone call, sees them at a tournament, sees them at ITF, and before you know it, they're at one of the academies in Florida. So is that <laughs> when, at 11 years old, is that when you made your move to Florida? It was at 12. Well, I, I, I had my first experience with coaching with Gordon Malloy. Yes. And I would, and the very next year at 13, I went for the summer, and then I actually went to a military high school in Florida. Mm-hmm. Played state championships, got to the semifinals in Florida and everything. I was highly recruited in Florida, Florida State, Florida, Stetson, you name it, UCF. Didn't really want to stay in Florida, though, because I don't really like Florida, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Southeastern Oklahoma State University, 
So there were a lot. I got accepted at USC, but not a scholarship, obviously. Because remember, if you're from the islands, you can't play the national tournaments. Right. You have right. to be an American. So right. if it wasn't by word of mouth, you weren't getting in. And that's exactly how I got to the Ohio State University, just by word of mouth, man. Yeah. And then they flew me up, man, for a visit. The minute I hit ground, that was it. Decision made. Now, that's that's interesting you say that because a lot of people don't really understand that, that if you if you are from one of the small islands, you aren't playing Kalamazoo, San Diego, none of the USTA, Midwest, all that, all that kind of stuff, Florida sectionals. And so it is by word of mouth and relationships and like just international relationships between college coaches and, you know, coaches overseas and in the, in the Mexico or the Bahamas to actually find players. You know, it ain't just let me right. go play Kalamazoo, somebody go see me. By the right. time they get to Kalamazoo, they already got somebody from Europe that they saw, you know yeah. what I mean, or the Bahamas. Right. And, and back then, remember, you didn't know the ITF junior tournaments were done different because it was done by invitation. Mm. Well, certain countries had certain allotment, right? Like the United States would get like 10 players in the slams, in the junior mm. slams. Islands like the Bahamas got like one player invited. <laughs> and of course, uh, I never got invited for whatever reason. We're not going to get into that. You know, right, right. players before me got invited. My turn, nothing. Players after me got invited. And I was always one or two in, in my country. But anyway. So, so you go to the Ohio State University. Did you do your recruiting visit? when it was snowing and when it wasn't snowing. Cause I'm always <laughs> curious about the, you know, we know we see guys in the Midwest try to fight to go to Florida, UCLA, Texas, TCU. And you went from Miami to Columbus, Ohio. I went luckily in, in March. It was turning a little, you know, and you know, it was, it, it was cool, man. Cause they had block parties and everything, man. And, and I mean, I was I was in awe because sixty four thousand students, man. You know, that's that's the population of my whole island. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to go to university with sixty four thousand people. Dang, mm. that was amazing. And I always wanted to go to a big school. So, but never thought Ohio State. All my friends that played football obviously wanted to go to Ohio State. So they were jealous when I went up there and came back and told them how great it was. And now, how good was the school back then? Were y'all contending for a championship? Were y'all twenty, you know, top twenty five? What was the what was the no, man, we weren't even we weren't even top. We weren't even top. I don't know. If we were top eighty, man. You know, we mm. we had a good three four players, and we fell off at five and six, and then we had maybe one or two good doubles team, mm. and then we had some injuries on our team that hurt us also. So mm. you can't win with four players. You know what I mean? You right. need a, you need a six players. But the the team was great, and I got what I wanted. You had. Uh, Ernie Fernandez, who was a graduate, would come back and practice and train with me. I had pros that would come in, and I was able to hit with them, so to keep myself going. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, well, one of one of my best coaches and persons instrumental in my development, Ron McDaniel, was there at Ohio State with you. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he always tells us these stories about how great he was, how good was Ron. You know, and by the time he started coaching me, you know, he had the braces on his knee, he had surgery. You know what I mean? So he's standing in the corner and bang with me cross court. You know what I mean? Yeah, so Ron, listen, man. Ron, Ronnie was good, man. Ronnie was yeah. good. Serving volume. He had a great serve. He had good hands. Ronnie was good. In fact, yeah. in fact, Ronnie beat me in our challenge matches. It was the only match like I lost in challenge matches. Ah. And, uh, was Ronnie that one time? We were we became real tight, real good friends. That was my boy in college, no doubt about it. You know, so we he, still talk. It, it, no, he was good. He was good. He did get injured, unfortunately. We were playing Harvard one time. Went off an overhead, came down, 
and and we needed him, man. If we had him, we could be top fifty. Mm. You know, one player, mm. you know, but uh, but it was unfortunate, man. I felt bad for him. Mm-hmm. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. So... You go from Ohio State, who wasn't top 25 in the country at that time. Now they're just a perennial powerhouse, right? And then you take that and you get top 100 in the world and make it on the Pro Tour. Yes. And it's, we've, we've seen players win NCAAs and never become top 100. Right. So what made you believe you could make the transition? What was the switch that happened that you go to? What then? Obviously, Ohio State's a big school, but a small tennis program at the time, right? Um to, you know, to really make that transition? Well, we had a good schedule, number one, which was good. And remember, I found my purpose early. So you know what? When you find your purpose, and I teach this all the time, come on, nothing's going to stop you. It doesn't matter where you go to school. It doesn't matter. If you really want it, you're going to find a way. Mm-hmm. And, and my purpose was so deep. I don't care where I went. I was going to find a way to do it. Obviously, my, you know, I wasn't worried about my tennis. I kept developing and stuff. And and I was top 20 in college, despite being at Ohio State or not a powerhouse. I was top 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to the NCAA a few years, won the Big Ten uh, two years or two or three years in singles and doubles. Uh, my biggest obstacle was finances, getting out of college. Mm-hmm. How was I going to get on the pro tour? Mm-hmm. And luckily, my junior year, uh, we had one of the guys on the team that graduated that year. And he was going to take over his father's uh, company as president. Mm. And so I started lobbying right then, bro, when you get out of school, man, you're going to sponsor me or what? And he's like, <laughs> it depends it, it depends on how you uh, how, how, how you handle yourself your senior year. So that gave me another incentive, right? Okay, I got means for this thing, man. I, I just got to push, keep pushing, keep pushing. And that's what I did. And and when I was done at Ohio State, and, and he was good friends with Bud Collins. Okay. And Bud Collins actually came to see us play a few times, uh, matches over the course of the years. And Bud Collins actually said, "Yo, this guy can play. This guy's a real deal. I, I see a good future for this guy." Mm. Well, I had that that financial help when I got out of school. Wow! You know? And it wasn't money that I could play with, obviously. Right. Uh, you know, I had to manage it, but I did for a couple of years. And within those two years on the tour, I, I got to a place, and then I was able to, you know, we talked earlier, but you know, beating Yvonne Lando at Stratton within those two years of, of leaving Ohio State. Yeah, so it was that was a famous story, right? So uh, <laughs> 1988, Yvonne Lindo was number one in the world, and here you come. How did, <laughs> how did, how did that happen? You know, those things, don't, you don't just rock, rock up and be the world number one, right? No. How does that happen? You know what I mean? I was like, did you eat a, a good bowl of cereal this morning? You know, <laughs> was he not 100%? You know... <laughs> What what was it? somebody was juicing you up the night before? I mean, somebody was gassing you up, right? The right court, right conditions. Tell us about that day, because those are days you don't forget. Yeah. Well, first of all, I knew Yvonne Lando from juniors when I when I represented the Bahamas at Sunshine Cup, which is now Junior Davis Cup or whatever it was. The right. Sunshine Cup was bigger than Orange Bowl, and when I played in the sixteens, you know, Yvonne Lando and and uh, Yannick Noah, they were like. John McEnroe, they were the top players coming up. 
Right. So I, I knew their names. In fact, one year I played Stefan Edberg at the Orange Bowl first round. And I said, damn, this guy's good. You know what I mean? Mm. Jeez. And I lost three and three, but I didn't play Sunshine Cup was big too. Right. But so I knew him, I admired him. I watched him in college. He was dominating, you know, at the time. And so the opportunity to even play him was great. And we're in Stratton Mountain. They asked me to do kind of like what we're doing right now, this radio talk show that the night before. And <laughs> I'm doing this radio talk show and they had a call in. And man, the lines were flooded. And everyone was talking about not just this match, but me as a player. They followed me at Ohio State. I, it surprised the hell out of me, right? But it made me feel good. I mean, I mm. didn't, I knew, I didn't know people followed me at Ohio State. I didn't know people followed me so far in tennis. And uh, I'm walking back from this talk show, and I'm walking to my my room. Now, back in the day, now I roomed with my my doubles partner Paul Wakesa from Kenya, right? So I'm feeling good, man. I'm hopping and I'm singing, man. And I get back to the hotel room and he's playing, ironically, Andre Agassi the next day. So I get to the room and I said, hey, man, I don't know about you, man, but I'm going to take over Yvonne Lando tomorrow. Are you ready? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what, what did he eat? What did he drink? What's happening? I said, man, hey, hey, he going down. You ready to take Andre out? And he's like, and he looked at me. He's like, well, I'm going to try. And I'm like, nah, man, that don't sound good, man. Are you ready? So. Long story short, you know, he played the match before me on center court and he lost 6-3 in the third. And then it's my turn to go on the court. Now, as I warmed up for my match and I warmed up a Yaya Dumbia, hmm. and uh, I couldn't miss, come on, I couldn't miss. And I'm doing crazy stuff, right? I'm changing grips. And I have a continental grip, by the way. And I'm using, I'm going full Western. I couldn't miss the ball. And I'm going, okay, okay. I'm in a good place. So we start the match. And this is how the mind goes. And I go 5-0 in 10 minutes. 5-0 in 10 minutes. Up 5-0. Up 5-0 in 10 minutes. Can't mm. miss. He's looking at me like, who, who the hell is this guy? Right? I get a 5-0 on the changeover, and I tell the story all the time. I'm sitting down, and I go, who the heck you think you are, man? Who the hell do you think you are? You can't beat the number one player in the world, Six Love. You got to be crazy. You must be smoking something, whatever you do. I go, then I lose two straight games. I took myself right out of the match. Mm. Five to one to change over. I snap back and I say, come on, man. This could be your only opportunity, man, to play the number one player in the world. You got to take advantage. Get back, get back, get back. I win 6-2. At the time, you had to change over after the first set, right? So I go in there, man. I go. I go 5-0, he's serving in 05, 15-40, and 10 minutes again. At that point, I go, come on, man, who the hell you think you are, man? You, man, you stupid, man. You can't beat the number one player in the world six. Look, you got to be crazy, right? 5-1, 5-2, he breaks me. 5-3, now I'm serving at 5-3, 15-40. And I go back to get the ball, I towel off, and I'm going, man, come on, snap back, snap back. Let's go, man, get back in this game. This could be your only chance. This is what you live for. This, Come on, fire, get back to playing the ball, the ball, the ball. Anyway, I get back to Deuce. We had, I had like four or five match points before I won. I was choking, man. I was like getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I just get, got ahead of myself. And then he had break points, and then I would play a great point. Finally, on the last match point that I didn't win, uh, he goes, I, I missed an overhead. He goes, he said, man, what's wrong with you, man? He says, I can't win the match, and you don't want to win the match. <laughs> right? 
But what he did was he loosened me up. Yeah. And so at that point, I said, I, and I was like, well, give me the match then, man. I'll take it. Right, right, right. It was crazy. They start laughing. And I, I settled down and I won two two straight points, you know. So there's a two and three of the number one player in the world. And and what was big about that match was it, you know, he 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 was what, number one in the world for, I don't know, six years, for like 200 and something weeks. And they took him out of number one spot for Edberg. Mm. That's why that match was pretty big. But yeah, you see how the mind works, though? Oh, no, it take you out of it. And, and, and guess what? And the, the thing I love about the men's game is you're playing, but there's there's conversation. He said, like, well, you don't want it, huh? Like, I'm, I'm, I can't win it. Today, not my day, and you don't want to take it. Right, right. <laughs> Man, it, it, it's crazy how the mind works. And you're right. You know, he actually settled me down. And right. He saw I was busting my butt, man. But, you know, he, you know, hey. But, you know, uh, people tried to say he gave, it, he gave me the match. But if you knew Yvonne Landel and Andre Agassi, Went on TV and said, "Look, man, if you know Yvonne now, he doesn't give anything away. Are you yeah, kidding? Yeah, ain't nobody giving you five off. Ain't nobody giving you nothing. Right. And and you're not gonna you're gonna lose your number one spot. And you know the difference between number one and even number two. So you he he didn't give me nothing. You know. So let's let's stay in that year, right? So it's a famous match with you and Yannick Noah. Wild man, right? You up two sets to nothing. Yeah, yeah. And end up. Going down, I don't want to say going down because y'all know, like 14, 16 in the fifth. Yes. Tell us about that match. I mean, we all hear about the John Nisner, the Nicholas Mahout, but that match for that era was like the marathon match. Yeah, and that was the first year that they moved to Melbourne Park, right, from Kuyong. Yeah. And, uh, and, and going a week before that, actually, I, I, I played a tournament at Sydney, and Sydney was on grass. Mm. And I'm playing second round against uh, John Fitzgerald. And I'm up a set and 5-2. Mm. And I lose that match. Mm. And he wins the tournament. Mm. And I'm so pissed, man. I'm so hurt. I mean, I'm fired up now. I don't care. Uh, go to Australian Open. And I'm playing Yannick Noah first round. And actually, this was in the, the earlier that year when I beat Lando, actually. And I think this actually was my most memorable match. A match that I lost. And I think this was the driving force that got me across the finish line, even against Lando seven months later or six months later mm-hmm. and uh, uh but i'm playing yannick man it was hard man we started at one o'clock we got off the court at just after six man it was five hours and actually it was the longest match in australian open history yeah until uh until roddick and alanawi yeah. 22 22 20 i think yeah and um and yeah so i'm playing that match against yannick great athlete i looked up to yeah now remember these are the guys i looked up to right knowing from the early years of tennis and the juniors, man, Yannick Noah, McEnroe, Lendl. And I'm playing Yannick and I go up two sets to love. And <laughs> he turns it on, man. He starts playing and doing the uh, Yannick stuff, man. And starts playing great. Starts playing great. Wins the next two set. So we're battling the fifth set. And again, I'm going, man, hey, you might not have an he's five in the world at the time, right? So I'm going, you might not have not have another chance like this. Push, push. So believe it or not, I had two match points at eight, nine in the fifth. But he's serving. And I remember one match point, he served in volley. He, I hit a passing shot. He dove for the shot. He's on the ground. Rackets out of his hand. <laughs> I stepped up and volleyed it in no man's land to not give him a chance. I lob it. All of a sudden, all I see is dreads, man. And <laughs> I, I, somehow he picked up the racket, man, and, and got up with his overhead. And, and I was just like, 
there's no way he just did that. <laughs> there's no way. So I knew it was an uphill battle from there. We battled, battled, and I finally lost 14, 16. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So even at the time, you know, again, I didn't, I was fresh, right? I didn't know the rules. I didn't know the rules or anything. I, I, I had blisters. I used Turner Grip. I don't want to talk bad about Turner Grip, but I used oh, Turner man. Grip. Very no, hard on hey, wait, No, you ain't got to say nothing. They know. Hey, man, I had like third degree burn. Oh, I mean, it was flesh. And it was blood. It, my, my racket was sticking to my hand. But, you know, coming from a military school and my background, it was like, I, I didn't even know what injury time was, right? But you, you don't quit, right? It doesn't matter. Right. And after the match, I go to the training room, man. And they're like, what? The trainers got so pissed at me. They were like, what are you doing? Like, why do you call an injury timeout? I didn't know the freaking rules. Come on. Right. I didn't know nothing but injury timeout, man. It was like, I don't know. Maybe it would have changed it. Maybe it wouldn't. Anyway, I, I, as of that day, I never used Turner Grip ever again. <laughs> <laughs> then I made the thin Turner Grip, extreme thin. Tacky. Oh, man. Turner Grip soft. It was crazy. So speaking of Turner Grip, right, when I think of Turner Grip, the face of Turner Grip when I was a kid was Pete Sampras. Right. Pete Sampras. But they made it thin for him. So check this out. So the summer where Pete Sampras basically didn't lose a set from Wimbledon to the U.S. Open. Yeah. He runs into you. And the reason why I bring up these matches is when you think about somebody's pro career, there are career-defining matches. Yeah. Right? Like, who knows what would happen if you would be, you know, Yannick. Right. Right. Who knows what would happen if you were able to beat Pete? So Pete Sanders doesn't lose a set all summer when Wimbledon to U.S. Open. He doesn't even get broken. Then he get broken the whole summer, and then you sitting down after the first set, and you are one set to love. What was going through your mind? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I I had a really good coach at the time, uh, Bruce Foxworth. Uh, rest in peace. He passed away uh, last year. Uh, who was an extreme good player also, you know, and he played some good matches at U.S. Open. So we had a good game plan against Pete. And uh, it was basically I had nothing to lose except the match. Right. <laughs> but I had everything to play for. Right. So I went into this match. Now, mind you, I, I did play Pete before. And I actually beat him. He was younger. Uh, it was the year before he won the U.S. Open. I, I actually beat him in San Francisco, Volvo. And... Um, so I, I was going to look, if I, if I fight well and compete well, I have a chance. But my goal in that match, again, was, look, I was nervous, man, and I didn't want to get embarrassed on CBS, <laughs> prime time, right, on a Sunday. Right. And I go, how do I not get embarrassed in this match? And we had a really simple game plan. Look, if you could hit 10 in a row and he wins, he's supposed to win, he's supposed to be great. You're not, people are going to say, you didn't look that bad, man. You know, it's not like you missed right, right. 10 balls in a row. But see what happens if you do it. So I, I got into that match, man. And my goal was, hey, 10 in a row. I, don't, I knew ten. I could run. I knew I could make balls. It was, I was going to keep it simple. So I started with that mindset, 10 in a row, 10 in a row. And before you know it, I break the guy the second game of the match, the, the second time he served. I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking anything, man. Ten in a row. We play, we play, and I get a second break. So I win that set. He turns it on. He goes up. It's one all, one set all. And then I go up again, 
4-2. And he turns it on in the third set. And he turns it on. Actually, <laughs> actually, hey, he's serving at 1-4-15-40. When I think of that match, I go back to that set. I win that game. I break him at 1-4-15-40. At done. That set's done. Right. Man, done. he. And this is this just shows how great they are, man. They mentally tough, man. That really didn't mean much to him. He he turned it up another level. I mean, one that's at six four. And then I go down five zero, man. I'm like, wow, man. You know, five zero in the fifth. And so we had this long game, this long game. And in the back of me, on the side I was was Nike, and I was with Nike at the time. And and this Phil Knight and Ian Hamilton and Richard Roundtree at the time, the Nike guys. And, and I'm fighting, man. I said, man, if I go down, I'm going to go down and fight. And I'm fighting. And I remember, again, turning to Nike. I saved one match point. I saved like three or four match points in that game. And and I remember looking at them and saying, man, I'm trying to save some airtime for Nike, man. <laughs> and, they're, and they're laughing. They're going. And, and honestly, they're like, come on, man. Come on, Roger. Let's go. Fight. Keep going. Keep going. And I win that game. Then I win another game. Then I win. Then I win another game. It's five three, and then he plays a great game, right? So it, it it ended up being very entertaining. But Pete was just great that time, man. I broke him three or four times in that match, and it was monumental. You know, my mm-hmm. whole family was there. My grandmother, mm-hmm. who I dedicated the match to, man. Uh, mm-hmm. All my family from the Bahamas was there, and 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 my wife at the time, and and errol my oldest son was three months old so he was a baby in the stands and i was I, it was all about that right it was it was being connected to something very dear to me right. you know this is what i preach today come on man you've got to connect it to something very dear to you that that gives you that push that yeah. drop you know what i mean so so we talk about the next chapter right you say today you're like one of the best coaches in the country coach tons of pro players which can go through later but what do you talk to them about in terms of finishing matches right when you look at like pro tennis today most matches aren't won, they're lost. No. Somebody had the match on their racket or, you know, was up in half of the games and just didn't win those games, right? Like, you know, you're up against Yannick, you're up against Pete, right? You know, you had chances to finish, but just came up a little bit short. What do you, from those experiences, how do you talk to players about finishing? Well, first of all, I got in the match connecting to my purpose, right? That, that's going to give you that extra drive mm-hmm. and, and that extra reason to push no matter what the score you know you got to get away from results you got to get away from expectations you got to get away from what people think about about you whether you lose or you win you're not going to embarrassment all these things go into mind but if you stay connected to your purpose it really doesn't freaking matter right Mm -hmm. i mean if you wanted to get pizza so bad you know, and there's a detour on the road, and then the, you get to one pizza place and, it, and it's closed down. You're going to find a way to get that pizza that you crave so much. Mm-hmm. So once, and, and I teach like this now, once you can connect your purpose, your primary purpose, something you have complete control, right? It can't be connected to something you don't have control. Mm-hmm. Winning, losing, how perfect you play, you don't have complete control of that. Mm-hmm. You have complete control of your attitude, your effort, those kind of things. And if you, once you connect your purpose, you can push beyond. And once you stay connected, that's what's going to get you across the finish line. Mm-hmm. So, and I look back in those matches that I didn't cross the finish line, I got caught up in winning and losing. That's what actually took, almost took me out of the match against Lendl, right? Mm-hmm. But it's actually what got me to cross the line a lot. 
Mm. If you can stay connected to your purpose, forget winning and losing, things you have control of, how you mm. want to be seen as a competitor mm -hmm. and, and, and as a player, that's what you connect to, man. And, mm. and, and that's what you do. And, 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 and the thing is, it's, it sounds easy, but it's not. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's got to be very deep inside you. And when mm -hmm. you look at all champions, you look at some of the greatest players, they, they connected to something, man. This, mm -hmm. uh, when you look at Djokovic, right? The guy's got, what, 24 slams right now. Right. Got a lot of money. Still, right? We don't know. But there is something that's pushing him. Something we may find out or we may not never know. But there's, it can't, he's got all the money. He's got all the slams. Why is he still playing? There's something still pushing. Is it his family? Is it his kids? Something is pushing him. And so you got to take your hat off to that. The problem is some people don't ever find that. Some people even run from that, believe it or not, because you have to soul search, you know, something deep inside you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they run from that because a lot of players, I find a lot of people in general, aren't happy with who they are. And so they don't want to dig deep. They run from that. That's mm -hmm. why whenever you give an advice to someone and you and you call them out and you're talking real talk, they run. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear the truth. Mm -hmm. But I find if they accept the truth based on, hey, I want to know who I am, they would, they would, there would be an acceptance a lot more. Mm -hmm. And you know what? They grow a lot more. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that, that's that's my philosophy. That's what I teach. There's no one that I coach that I want to leave, that they're a failure. And if I go in there coaching saying, because you're going to win 10 slams and because you're going to beat all these great players, I'm setting them up. Mm -hmm. No, you connect to your purpose. There's no right or wrong, good or bad. Mm -hmm. You push that. It's all good. Mm -hmm. It's all perfect. It's all great. It's going to give you peace. Trust that if you do that, you're going to maximize your chances of getting those accolades, right? Mm -hmm. And then you don't push that across the finish line for the wins. You push that to see how far you can push and see how far you can go. Mm -hmm. You do that, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I think one of the things that sort of prevents the push, right? You said it earlier. You said um, people always say you got nothing to lose. I'm like, you do have something to lose. You got the match to lose. You can lose this match. And now you can lose the 100 grand that's associated with winning this match. The difference between... Losing the first round of U.S. Open and losing the second round of U.S. Open is a hundred grand. So you do have something to lose. You got this match to lose and the hundred grand delta by between losing this round and losing the next round. So right. attach yourself to the fact that you are playing for something, yes. rather than deeper than that. Yeah, detaching yourself like, oh, I don't care. I got to lose. It's okay. No, that's a cop out, right? No. Attach your. Don't be afraid to emotionally attach yourself to what you're trying to achieve and, and something that's going to drive you above and beyond yeah absolutely absolutely you want to you know it's funny funny you said that um some of you say you said just count to 10 right you talked about just if i can make 10 balls right you you if you look at tennis that you'd be surprised how many matches even at the tour level especially early in the early in a tournament where you can just let me just make 10 balls <laughs> right. I don't need nothing special yet, right? I don't need no right, right. running down line forehands. I don't need no, you know, serving volley. I don't need no big inside out forehands. I don't need 42 winners. How about let's just not have 42 errors, right? Let's just not, let's not miss unnecessarily. Yeah. And, and what you're going to find is when you go with that mindset, you're going to groove everything. You're going to build confidence. And then you have some room to 
push it a little higher or push it a little bit more, right? You and 10 then, balls, you'll get a short ball. You can crack it. Right, right. But eventually you can push it too far and then you got to manage it again. And that's what the great players do so well, right? They manage the energy so well, right? Yeah. You know, they know they push it because you want to push it. Don't say you don't push it. But you know when you push it too far, you start overhitting and bring it back down, not to zero. Bring it down to like a seven and you mm -hmm. can always build it back up. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's what you do. Sounds easy, right? Sounds easier, of course. Mm -hmm. Than it is, but yeah, that's how you manage your energy. But Djokovic does that because you look at Djokovic and you look at how he withstands the fight from all the young bulls and how he's managing like every point the guys are eh, eh, everything and Novak's just okay, you know. But then when yeah. it's time, you see him like just turn it up just a oh, little. And Roger used to do the same thing, Roger Federer, right? All he of them, all the energy. yeah, all the champions. I, I mean, see, I mean. Right. All of them. I mean, yeah. Rafa in his book, right? He talked about, hey, guys can play great against me. I don't have control over that. You've got to weather the storm. It's almost like you got to go under the umbrella, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and just push, push, push until the calm quiets up, quiets down. Mm -hmm. And then you get your opportunities to take advantage, right? You got to mm -hmm. weather the storm sometime, right? Mm -hmm. You can't panic. You can't get frustrated. You can't be embarrassed. You can't disconnect. It's going to happen. The, the game, mm -hmm. that's what happens, right? Weather the storm, keep your focus, keep committed to things you can control. And then when the storm dies down, you're ready to go. And you see them do it all the time. Guys win sets, might go up two sets of love, go up a set, even to match point. And these guys are still pushing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean that, that's just, that's what a champion does. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you one player on the men's side, one player on the women's side that excites you. Not necessarily that they have won a slam or even are top 20. But as a coach, you see potential, right? And as somebody that's played the best player in the world, right, and beat the number one player. Someone that has potential? Yeah, potential and or is like right on the cusp of doing something historic. One man, one woman that excites you. I'll tell you, man, you know, there's a couple of people that come to mind on the men's side, but I actually like Ben Shelton. Mm. I like his attitude. I like his game. He goes for it. He looks like he's playing things that he can control. He, he looks like he doesn't get too far ahead of himself. I like the direction he's going. And I know his dad very well, so I know his dad has got him well-grounded. Mm. I like his game. I mean, of course, I love Tiafo. I love all of them, right? I love where Chris Eubanks have gone. I, I, I just like American tennis, right? But um, I, I really think Ben Shelton is something, to mm -hmm. tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. On the women's side, you know, I mean, how can you not respect Coco, of course? You know, I see that push in her. You know, she was right there for a few years and couldn't quite, let's say, push over the hump to get the slam. And obviously she got, you know, some things going, this U.S. Open man, and was able to manage it. And I think that was the big difference. She always had the talent. She always yeah. could run. She always could hit. Something got her to push these things, you know, to stay in the battle and not feel, get ahead of herself, feel like she had to play better or mm. whatever. She just pushed what she had. And she's learning, and I think she's going to be around for a long time. Oh, yeah, she's going to be a problem for a long If she keeps, and I'm going to go a little to, to what Kobe Bryant said when he saw her. It's going to be her ability to sustain this, right? Because, you know, we can get ahead of ourselves sometimes, and we can get out of it. And like Djokovic said, it's how quick you can get back on path. Mm -hmm. So it's going to happen. It's how quick you get back on the path. I mean, that's what she has her team for. But I think she's going to be around for a long time. I love, I love her game. But more importantly, I love her push. I just yeah. love the way she competes, man. And that's that to me, I'm a I'm a big fan of that. 
how you compete. I mean, the level that she competes at, and she's not probably the best. She'll be, she's not the best version of herself now. She still has, is improving, can improve. If she maintains that fight while slowly improving different skill sets, I mean, she's, you know, obviously 20 some slams is, you know, that's some Serena stuff that may, may or may not ever happen. But the girl can like, run tennis for a long man, you, you know what richard williams told me before man he said look he, he said i said man if my player could ever do anything that venus and serena is doing man i'd be happy he says look man and he and he was very serious about this he said look they can do it and they can do more and i was like huh i said these are the greatest man he's like because seeing it gives you every uh, uh ability advantage. And yes. advantage that it can be happened he right. said when we did it we didn't see it Mm-hmm. you know with with us and he right. says but when you see it you can do it and i'm a firm believer in that so as long as they keep the path it can be done you know what i mean and and she doesn't have to think 24 right she got to think one ball at a time right and she does now. a certain amount of years and hopefully she'll get it yeah right and and i think she can do that i mean she's shown that she can do it so let me ask you because you know you you know a lot of coaches are great coaches and their kids go play something different right you know like you know, it doesn't matter. Just because you're a great coach doesn't mean your kid's going to be a great player. But Arrow, your son, is a great player, right? Uh, and is now coaching Boise State. Yes. I've seen you on the court, and you like me. It, <laughs> it, gets, it gets rough. You know, it, it, it gets rough out there, right? Of course. So tell me about, tell me how it was coaching your son and having to go home and sit across him for the dinner table. Because I know yeah. if it was me, Sometimes I sit across from my player at a restaurant and I'd be like, you don't even deserve that Indian food you're about to put in your mouth right now. I, I, I should slap the fork out your mouth, right? Yeah, so I can imagine, right? My, my, my daughter never was like serious enough for me to be that upset about practice, right? You know what I'm saying? Um, but I could see you having some long car rides. Oh, yeah. Uncomfortable dinner table conversations after a bad practice. Tell me about raising a tennis player well i'll tell you he was a, a, an exceptional kid because when he, he's he been around tennis since he was born like when i played the peace Sanders match he was three months old and he was there right i remember he was three three years old watching me play at the u.s open and then uh, people in the stands next to him were talking very loud and he turned around and said shh my dad's playing shh right this is a three-year-old and they're like okay okay that's your dad okay we're so sorry right. so Errol was a little special kid. He, he's, you know, he, he understood the game. He loved the game. I didn't force him to play. He loved the game. I mean, there were two, three o'clock in the morning, he would walk out of the room, sleeping, out of his room, turn on the television. He'd be sitting down watching tennis. Mm. You know, he'd sit down, he'd go to the computer. His favorite player, his two favorite was obviously me and Pete Sampras. He loved Pete Sampras. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he he had a great two on backhand. There was no way he was going to stay with two on backhand. He was going to play one, and he had a really good two on backhand because he was a baseball player too, mm. and he was really good. You know, actually, Errol, I I actually made him play baseball. And I said, look, you're gonna to have to play until you get to the major leagues at 13 years old. And the last year, you know, and he made all stars a couple of times. And the last year, actually, one of his last games in the in the championships against Long Beach, he pitched a no hitter. And uh, he was invited to go represent the United States and Japan. 
said, no. He said, Dad, you told me I only have to play till I was 13. I don't want to play. <laughs> now, I'm like, are you kidding me, man? Dude, this is an opportunity of a lifetime, man. You know what I mean? He wanted to play tennis. Mm. But it's amazing because, you know, he was a scholar of the game. He, he knew everybody. He knew their style of play. He learned that at a young age. Um, and now, looking back, I see why sometimes I would get frustrated. It was more about him learning the game than even playing the game. Mm. He was a people's person. Everybody at Carson, at the USTA, knew him. He was very personable. He knew everybody's game. He could imitate anybody that played. Mm -hmm. But what he was doing was learning the game. And I think the coaching was just who he was going to be. Mm. So had I known then, I would have saved a lot of hair, gray hairs, right? Dude, if I knew this is what he wanted to do, uh, dude, I'm not going to worry why you slapping the ball and trying to hit so hard and trying to blah, blah, blah. But this is what his calling was, man. And and I believe in energy, man, and, and, and vibes. And, and, and it just so happened that he worked the camps at UCLA with Stella and Rance. And eventually the assist, uh, volunteer assistant coach job came, came open. And he jumped for it. And he did it one year. And then they lost their volunteer assistant the, last year. Stella called him up again because he had a certain relationship with the team. And he did it. and. Obviously, it worked really well in his favor. And right then, I just knew I could just see the satisfaction in him, man. And mm. uh, uh, and he's happy. He's happy mm. at Boise State. He would have been happy anywhere, to tell you the truth. This mm. is his purpose. This is what he feels is his calling. He would have been happy anywhere, to tell you mm. the truth. He really wanted to stay at UCLA. But, you know, the Big Ten is, I mean, the Pac-12 is going through some stuff. Mm. And, uh, and half of them are going to, back to the Big Ten. Half are going into the Big Eight. But... um. He's happy, man, and I'm happy for him, man. I'm happy for him. So all those gray hairs pulling out, it was worth it, man, because he's in a good place. So let me ask. So when I was, uh, I played at Florida A&M, and the best player that ever came across Florida A&M was a boy from the Bahamas, LeVon Monroe. Yes. LeVon, crazy dude. But rest, rest, rest in peace. Rest in peace. But that boy could play. Yeah. And when you look at his size, his physique, his talent, uh, it makes me think about all the talent in USVI, Barbados, Bahamas. What do you think we need to do? And this will be the last question. I know you got it wrong. What do you yeah. think we need to do to get more of that talent, to give them the help to develop? Because, I mean, that boy, when he came, I'm like, man, this is a big-ass dude. <laughs> I mean, this dude, and serving volley, could stay in a rally, one-hand, backhand. Yeah. Hug the baseline, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, but I was like, man, it's just – and then when I think about, like, Hampton's team. Hampton had a uh, great guys, Greg Monroe, Greg from uh, University of Virgin Islands and John right. and Ali and his brother Albert. I mean, so much talent over there. What? Why do you think – there's less of them today than back in the day. And why do you think that is? Yeah. Can... Well, uh, I go back to my story. You know, there's there's got to be a purpose, number one. You know, you've got to have a vision. And, and again, tennis is not the biggest sport in the Bahamas. If you know right now, basketball is number one and track and field. And so yeah. we, we're producing some great basketball players, right? I mean, you got DeAndre Aiden and you've got Buddy Heal now. And you've got, uh, you can even go to, uh, uh, you know, uh, back in the day with uh, Michael Thompson, Clay Thompson's mm -hmm. dad. You got Clay mm -hmm. Thompson. And 
basketball is just the biggest sport. And then there's track and field, right? Tennis is still an expensive sport to play. Uh, and finance has become a big thing. And and, and speaking of Levon, uh, God, you know, he passed away, obviously, and, and rest his soul. But I, I had the opportunity to coach him uh, when he got out of college. And mm-hmm. uh, But again, finances was a big thing. And I started a program to help Bahamian players. You know, and I, his brother was a recipient and, and a few others. Um, uh, but again, it runs out, right? If the right. money's not there, it, it runs out. And, and you know it's a marathon on a sprint. Mm-hmm. So you get two or three years to produce yourself before the money runs out. And if you don't, you can't sustain it, right? right? If you could sustain it, I'm sure they would be there a lot longer, give themselves a better chance, and and could probably do something. So that's the first thing. The second thing also is, look, it's it's up to what? It's up to the country, right? It's up to the associations of, of those countries. I would like to say the Bahamas and the Virgin Islands to, to really invest in these players, right? And and we're a little bit, it's a third world country, let's face it. You know, we're right. close to the United States. And again, finances is a big thing, and but it takes someone in the government to kind of uh, uh, help this situation as far as tennis. They're doing it with basketball. They're doing it with uh, uh, track and field now. They build a nice track and field stadium. They've done all this stuff. But you really need to get the government behind you in countries like that. That, that mm-hmm. goes a long way. Um, and so that infrastructure there has to be in place. And I, when I retired from the tour, I went back and I, I tried to create that. But you know how it is. You run into, again, politics. And you run into to change, and you know how change can be, you know, with the powers to be. And, and so eventually I was called and, uh, by the USTA because what happened was I was the Olympic coach. And we actually, with Mark Knowles and Mark Merkel, we beat the United States at the Olympics in Sydney. First round, they were number two seeds. Mm-hmm. And I, Paul Anacom was there, man. And I knew Paul. And he, and he asked me, he said, hey, would you ever consider being a national coach in the U.S.? I said, man, I love the opportunity. So when the time came, they offered me the opportunity. And I, you know, it was a tough decision to make, but because I didn't want to leave something I started. But right. hey, man, it was a great thing for me at the time. And I, and I went to the USDA. Because normally when you, when you beat the U.S., right, you're in the same world group as the U.S., the, the country see, okay, we need to start investing in this, right? Because really when you think about federations, right, number one, they want to support the Grand Slam, right? Use that funding. You want to win Fed Cup. You want to win Davis Cup, right? You like our goal. Our goal is obviously to grow the sport, but we also want to win, right? BJK Cup, right? Formerly Fed Cup. We want to win Davis Cup. We want to get a home a home player to win our home slam, right? right? And those are really at the top level the goals of the federation, right? Yeah. And that's where the money sort of you know what I mean has to have a long term approach. So I'm surprised that following that win, that it wasn't more of a, okay, we got it now, right? These yeah. guys are going to age out, though. So who we got that's 12 right. that we can either – and because there's so much good climate down there. I mean, you got great weather, great tennis courts, resorts, et cetera. You would think that that's 75% of it because, you know, like in the States, we have climate issues. We got Chicago, Ohio, New York. We have – you know, and those issues create indoor court issues, which create yeah. court time issues, which create – I mean, it's just, it's just a snowball – kind of thing but in the bahamas <laughs> every day is paradise you know what i mean but, 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 but you're hitting it right there yeah. every day is paradise 
everything. Life is good in the Bahamas, man. Look, you you can't die of starvation in the Bahamas, right? I mean, come on. You just need a line and a hook and bait. You got the best fish in the world. You go there, you you throw your water, your line out on the beach or anywhere on a rock somewhere. You're going to eat. You're going to get a fish. You know, you got a lot of wild fruits, mm. right? You can go to any anybody's yard and get fruit to eat. You know, mm. good fruit, mangoes, you know, you name it. You know, oranges, whatever. You're going to eat. So mm. the hunger sometime on the other side, on the flip side of it, we lose that. And mm. we had a lot, we've had a lot of athletes that have come to the U.S., college in the U.S., and perform. And they just quit and go back home, mm. right? Why? Life is so good at home, man. You know, you get so caught up in island life, man. And it's like, <laughs> like you said, it is paradise. Who doesn't want to live in paradise, right? Shit, you know, hey, <laughs> I started an academy. Sign me up. <laughs> but, but there you go. So it's a twofold thing, right? So uh-huh. you can't just, yes, you, you can't blame the Federation yeah. and, and, and the players or the, or the athletes too, man. It's, I mean, we've had some great basketball players and baseball players. We've had players in the in Major League Baseball and, and mm. football now. And, and they come home, man, and it's like, man, life is good home, man, you know. But life is good, you know. It's easy to get caught up in that, man. Oh, it's man. Easy. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> well, uh, look, man, you're one of the best coaches in the country. Um, coached a lot of great players in the world. Continue to be a mentor uh, and someone – Whenever people come up with black coaches and who's the best coach in the country, your name is always in the <laughs> the mention of the Savianos, the Anacombs, the you know the Bolateries, right? Roger Smith comes up. So um, I admire you. I appreciate you coming to the show. And you talk about life is good. Life is good for you now. You got grown kids that are hey. making their own way, living in the sport. You know, you help Sloan develop. You help Nicole Gibbs de- develop, and a bunch of other players, right? So now you can kind of. Well, I appreciate it, Kamal. I appreciate this opportunity. This was this was great. I had a lot of fun, man. And and you're doing some great things, man. And and continue, like you said, there's a few of us out there. There's a handful, and obviously you were one of the few that, you know, went on and took another player, whatever, black, white, whatever, to be a Grand Slam champion. So hat goes off to you too, man. Uh, good job. That's great not, job. Tell us about your podcast. Uh, hey, listen, I was just going to say that, man. I want to give a shout out to A Lot of Racket. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it called? A Lot of Racket. I mean, we create a lot of racket. I don't mean tennis rackets either, man, right? right. <laughs> so, so you can please follow us on uh, on uh, on you on social media, YouTube, uh, Instagram, uh, Spotify. We drop every Tuesday. And, okay. and what we do is we try to get stories of champions, the making of champions, get their story, just like we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, we go a step further. It's a time for them to really acknowledge who their rock was. Mm-hmm. Who was the person behind you? Who was the, the, the organization behind you or the person or the group of people, right? It could be a parent. It could be someone else, right? Because mm-hmm. there's always someone there through all the obstacles that you have to face in development. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, so it, it's really a lot of fun, man, and, and it's experiences that are untold, man. And we're really excited to 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 get this thing started. We're in our first season. Okay. Every Tuesday, man, at a lot of racket. At a lot of racket. Guys. Yeah. Oh, there it is, right there. There it is, right there, man. And it, it's great stuff. So well, man, we, we, we appreciate the stories you told today. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to subscribe. I'm going to listen. I'm always Please. Reaching back, you know, I, I sit around Billy and Rosie, and I sit back yeah. and I just listen to all the stories from the old days, and I'm fascinated. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
about how far we've come, but how far tennis has to go. We still hey, hey, hear my stories, but don't repeat them. Huh? All right. <laughs> Your secret's safe with me, They're brother. Really swing them, man. Come on. I, I, I take them to the grave. Don't worry. I take them to the grave. <laughs> hey, also, too, you know, I've, I've ventured into my, my cons more into consulting now, too. I coach, of course. Yeah. And I, I started consulting because I think there's a need for that to help teams connect. Yeah. You know, players and coaches. A lot of times, you know, we're in an era where players are switching coaches all the time. Hey, listen, man, it's not always the coach or or it's not always the player. You know what I mean? So what I've, what I've found that it's just bridging the gap for, for better communication. Because mm -hmm. you got so far with the coach, what makes this coach bad all of a sudden, right? All of a sudden, you got to yeah. switch. No, 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 no. No, it just means you get to a place where, hey, you just need to put some effort into communication, better understanding, and keep pushing, you know? Yeah. And so my goal is to stop pointing fingers and stop switching coaches all over the place because that's a whole process, and it kills a lot of us. Oh. So you have to start that whole process all over again you're you're at a you're at a stalemate some most of the time. Very, very few. Not so often you're gonna just find someone to just click, right? right? So this is what I'm doing now. It seems to help. I help programs. I help coaches, teams, colleges. You name it. So uh, yeah, it's I'm, hard. I'm, it's, it's it's hard to travel with somebody for thirty eight weeks. Yes. And during that time period, not get on each other's nerves, right? Yes. And and not just simplify it to, I'm actually just tired of seeing you. You know what I mean? I'm exactly. Just, I'm just I'm just tired of eating with you. You know what I mean? Maybe you yeah, need to go home. That's okay. that's okay, but stay connected. You know? Yeah, of course. So anyway, you can follow that on. I have my website, uh, CoachRogerSmith.com. On you know, I have my website there for the consulting. That's another thing. So I'm into some stuff, which is good. So I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Ah, uh, I got you now. You can you hear me? Thank you. I can't hear you. Oh. I, I can't hear you, but the listeners can hear you, I hope. So I appreciate you. Thank you, man. Appreciate Thanks you. Thanks for coming on. All right. This Thank has you. been the Tennis.com podcast with Roger Smith.